please take your copy of God's Word with me, and let's return once again to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 19 this morning, Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Uh, This is the last parable Jesus will teach before going to the cross. Uh, So we're going to look at it today, but before we uh, do, it's our custom here at Trinity to pray and ask for God to help us as we come to listen to his word together. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit together under your word once again. We pray this morning that as we listen to Jesus' teaching, that by your spirit you would accomplish your will in our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 19, beginning in verse 11, let's hear God's word. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten Uh, Minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, Your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to those who stood, well, excuse me, I missed the verse there, didn't I? Uh, He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I Did not so. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, that is, the citizens, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, let's recall the story of the Gospel of Luke up to this point. Jesus has come into the world to be our Savior, and he has established the kingdom of God. He has been baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he has begun to preach that the kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament 
has indeed come. The kingdom of God has come because the king of the kingdom has stepped onto the stage of history. And Jesus manifests the presence of the kingdom over against the powers of the kingdom of darkness by withstanding the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. And then in enemy-occupied territory, he demonstrates his kingdom power by by reversing the effects of sin and bondage that people were under, under the reign of darkness and sin. So he heals the sick, he cleanses the leper, he lepers, he raises the dead, he, he shows the power of the kingdom in his actions and the truth of the kingdom in his teaching. He's beginning, you see, throughout the Gospel of Luke to create a new society, a new humanity. Men and women and boys and girls wonderfully set free to live for God as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has begun to teach his followers about the life of discipleship, what it means to, to follow him. And Luke sets this teaching portion of his gospel within the framework of, uh, of a traveling group. Remember that transition point back in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to, to die and rise again to be our Savior. And ever since then, since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the life of discipleship, what it means to follow him. And so while they have been uh, physically following him, Jesus has been teaching them about what it means to follow him spiritually. And a quick look at this passage shows that this journey, is, it's, it's nearing its end. This is Jesus' final parable. And in a little while, he's going to, he's going to see Jerusalem. He's going to weep over it. And then he's going to be received into Jerusalem with all kinds of excitement and enthusiasm because the people think that the king has arrived. Now, one of the helpful things in Luke's gospel is he has a habit of often telling you the purpose of a parable before the record of Jesus teaching the parable. And he he does that here. The parable is told because Jesus is near to Jerusalem because many supposed that the kingdom of God was about to be revealed in its full and final form. So Jesus has, just as Jesus has shown his power over the powers of darkness, over sin, over death, now he will show his power over the occupying force that is the Roman Empire. He will deliver the people from bondage to Rome and Jerusalem will become that great capital city pictured in the Old Testament and David's son would sit upon the throne and Jerusalem would be that city that the nations come running to. And so their expectation, if you you think of it this way, they, they were expecting a political kingdom to be gloriously ushered in. And they thought Jesus was their man. But of course they were profoundly mistaken. Not about Jesus being the man. 
but about the type of kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And so Jesus tells them this parable to, to help his disciples better understand that's not how it's going to work. That he has brought in his kingdom, but that what's going to happen in the next few days in Jerusalem is not the consummation of his kingdom. There's, there's a long way to go. Yes, he's on the way to Jerusalem, but he's on the way to Jerusalem to suffer and die and rise again from the dead. And then he's going to be physically absent for a while, and then he will return. And there is a long time then to serve in the kingdom of God until Jesus' kingdom is fully and finally realized on the day of his return. And so Jesus is telling us what disciples should be doing in the meantime, in the in-between time. Jesus is really saying to his disciples that if you're in it for the long haul, you need to, you need to understand this. You need to grasp that there are, there are really two primary events on the divine timeline. One of them is about to take place in my suffering and death and victorious resurrection. The other is removed from it at a distance when I return in majesty and glory. And in between those two great redemptive events, Jesus here is calling his disciples to be faithful stewards. So that's the, that's the general meaning of the parable in the context of, of Luke's gospel. So what's the, what's the general message for us as followers of Jesus today? I think it's pretty clear as Christians, we live out our lives between these two great redemptive events. The one that took place in Jerusalem and Jesus' death and resurrection and the one that is yet to come when he returns in majesty and glory. And those events are what determine and shape my life if I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The two great events that define my life are not the day of my birth and the day of my death. While that might be the two defining events for many who are unbelievers because they think that all of life is being born into the world and dying out of it. There's no, there's no bigger story. There's no larger narrative. But the two events that shape the Christian life are the events of Christ's death and resurrection, having, having borne our sin and guilt and rising again to send forth his spirit to apply all that Jesus obtained for us. That's event number one. And we live looking back to that, to Christ's finished work. But we also live looking forward to an event that is yet to take place. The day of his coming in majesty and glory when he will usher in his kingdom in its full and final form. You see, in the in-between time though, the place in which we find ourselves, he calls us to be good stewards of what he has entrusted to us. So what's the difference between Ownership and stewardship. I mean, ownership says it's mine and therefore I'm free to do with it whatever I want. Stewardship says it's the Lord's and therefore I must do what he wants me to do with it. So let's take a closer look at the parable thinking today about stewardship as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it begins, 
we're introduced to two groups of people. First, there are the servants, and notice that each of the servants are given a mina. The, then there's another group called the citizens. Uh, verse 14, the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want anything to do with this man. We don't want him to reign over us. You know, those who would have had ears to hear would have known exactly who Jesus was referring to. He was speaking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the people of his day who outright rejected Jesus' claims, who said they don't want anything to do with this Jesus, who rejected his authority over them. They didn't want him to reign over them. But what are the servants told to do? They're they're told to do business with what they were given. To put, the, to, to put the, the mina to use, to multiply it, to make good use of it. Because what's going to happen is inevitable. The king is going to return. And when you look at the king's return, having, having received his kingdom, there are two categories of servants. There are faithful servants and there is an unfaithful servant. There are good stewards and there is a bad steward. Something I noticed this week as I studied the passage, you know, this is something about the Bible. You can read something over and over and over again and, and still new things strike you. And that happened to me this week. As you're looking at it, how many servants receive money? There were 10. But we're only given three reports. Why? What, what's the purpose of that? I think the answer is because Jesus simply wants to teach us about the range of stewardship. We're we're seeing the various ways people prove faithful or unfaithful as his stewards. And so first of all, you've got the productive servant who speaks to the master upon his return. The first one comes in verses 16 and 17. When Mino was entrusted to him, it became ten. Next guy comes in, one becomes five. Both of those are pretty good. You notice what the master says to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You you used what I gave you, the resources I entrusted to you. You were given one and you made ten more. So I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. Now you see the point. The basic point is there is a relationship between their service and the blessing of the master. But I think there's also another important point to realize here. That the blessing of the master is out of all proportion to the service. And so you serve the Lord Jesus in whatever sphere he calls you to. And at the end he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to set you over, over Johnstown. And while we're at it, how about, how about Charlotte? How about Pittsburgh? How about Philadelphia? I know you like to go down to Florida, so how about Orlando or Tampa? How about Dallas? I know you like to travel overseas sometimes, so maybe we'll throw in London and, and, and Sydney. You see, the point, of the, the, the point of the parable here is to, to get the, the servants to say, Lord, what have I ever done? To be entrusted with such a gift. And I think the answer is, oh, you, you, you thickhead. <laughs> Don't you understand that I am full of grace 
Don't you understand that that's, the, that's meant to be the motive driving you to delight in the service of my name? But then we meet this third servant, the unfaithful one. He, he comes in, puts his hand in his pocket, and he pulls out a hanky. And he opens it up, and he says, Lord, here's your, your mina. I want to give it back to you. Now, ask the question, what was his motivation? Because this gets to the heart of things. I was afraid of you. Because I thought you were a severe man. And the, the word there, in Greek, it carries the idea of, of austere, of hard, narrow, difficult. So what does the king say in response? He says, just listen to yourself. I, I, I'll grant you what you're saying, because you condemn yourself with your, your very own words, that I'm a hard man. I mean, if I'm a hard man, shouldn't you have at least done something with what I gave you? But of course, of course, the really tragic problem here is that the unfaithful servant doesn't really know the true character of the king. He doesn't grasp who it is that he serves. He's actually abundantly, infinitely kind and generous and good. I mean, you can imagine this man coming into the presence of, of the king, passing by these other two servants who are on their way out and them saying to one another, what did, he, what did he give to you? Oh, well, he gave me charge over ten cities. What did he give to you? He gave me charge over five cities. Can you believe that? Is that a hard man? Does that sound like a stingy man to you? But you see, his problem is that he thought the king, an austere man, and therefore never had any motivation to serve him or love him. He missed it all, and now even what he had been given was going to be taken away. See, it's very telling. I think it's very telling because, frankly, we all know the third servant. The third servant is at church every Sunday. It's the person who is saying, it's so hard to serve God. I've got so much work to do. It's such a burden. I'm trying my best. I'm gritting my teeth. But he is just so, he's so He's so demanding, he's so narrow, he's so severe, he's just a downer. And so you see, this makes all the difference, I think, for our thinking about Christian service because this is what turns Christian service into a delight because he is such a generous and good and kind master. When the, when the grace of our king gets hold of our hearts. Yes, there is hard work to do in the in-between, but serving this master becomes increasingly joy and freedom and life. And so the king asks him, why didn't you at least put money in the bank? Even with lousy interest rates, you would have gotten, you would have gotten some return and, and notice this man is referred to as a wicked servant in verse 22. I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Does that sound a little harsh to you? Well, I, I think sometimes we can minimize the seriousness of direct disobedience to God. What, what is the defiance of a divine command? Engage in business with what I've given 
to you. And defying that is nothing less than evil and wickedness. So the king says, all right, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take back that mina from, from you and I'm going to give it to the one who faithfully served. And the, Lord, the crowd says, Lord, but why? He already has ten. But you see, there really is no place to complain because it wasn't the servants to begin with. It wasn't as though the king was taking something that belonged to the servant. Now there's discussion here about whether the wicked servant was a true follower of Jesus. I think that's an interesting question to think about. You know, the, the text doesn't say. The way this man describes the king as hard and severe and austere reveals the fact that he has a profoundly distorted understanding of the king, if he knows the king at all. On the other hand, he's not placed with the citizens, is he? He's identified as one of the servants. And so the citizens, though, who want nothing to do with the king, they reject his rule. And the scriptures, along with this passage, uniformly say that if you reject God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the result is condemnation. That's what's taught at the end of this parable. Reject the lordship of Christ. And the result is eternal destruction. But for this unfaithful servant, you see, I think he's someone who professed to be a follower and subject servant of the king. But in the hour of judgment, something was exposed about his heart. But whether the third servant is a true follower of Jesus or not, I think the real issue pressed upon us here is the question, how are, how are we doing in the in-between? How are we doing as stewards of the king? The time between Jesus' death and resurrection and his future return in glory. Because in the in-between, dear friends, we have work to do. And so as we reflect upon this parable, I think there are several helpful principles for us to be reminded of as we draw them out of this passage. Let me just point them to you briefly. The first principle is the principle of accountability. So the whole idea of stewardship, since we, since we don't own it, since it belongs to another, is the idea that one day we will have to give an account for what we've done with what God has entrusted to us. That's backed up by several passages of scripture. One of them, 2 Corinthians uh, 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, Paul is, Paul is not saying that our salvation is on the line here. That's not what he's talking about. Because we are only accepted by God the Father on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ for us. But scripture does speak about an evaluation and a corresponding reward in proportion to the service of the saints. We see that principle here. That Jesus is the ultimate appraiser of the stewardship, our stewardship, of his gifts. And for sure, there are many different kinds, many different things that come to mind when we talk about the, the broad responsibility of stewardship. 
But one of the first things this parable would lead us to think about together is the stewardship of money, the stewardship of finances. Accountability is something that it's, it's good for us to think about when it comes to this topic because it's probably not something we think about as often as we should. We can very easily slip back into the ownership mentality, can't we? Well, this is something I earned. This is something that belongs to me. Therefore, it's my inherent right to do with it whatever I please. But that is not how we are to think as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's money God gives us as stewards, and we will be held accountable for what we do with it. And this principle, it applies to all of us, whether we have a lot or a little. We are all called to be good stewards who will give an account one day. That's the first principle, accountability. The second principle is opportunity. Opportunity is, I think, a really important word here to see that now, now is the time that we have to invest in the kingdom. God has not merely given us things so that we can satisfy ourselves, but so that we can get busy serving him. And I also, I also don't think, like I suggested a moment ago, that we should limit this to talking about money. Because it's, it's not just about stewardship of finances. It's about stewardship of everything. It's about the stewardship of our lives. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, anything whereby we may glorify God is included here. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections. I need to take a breath. Our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all our talents. Whence came these things, he asks? What hand gave them? We are what we are. Why are we not worms that crawl upon the earth? The only answer to these things, Ryle says, is that all we are and have is from God. We are God's stewards, God's debtors. Let this thought sink deeply into our hearts. And so, friends, all of us have opportunity to use the things the Lord has given us for the advance of the gospel. You know, one of the commitments that people make when they become a member of Trinity in any PCA church is they promise to support the worship and the work of the church to the best of their ability the work of the church to the best of their ability. It's about stewardship, isn't it? Seizing the opportunity God has given to us to use what he's entrusted to us to support the work of the church. What's the work of the church? Well, to make and to nurture and to care for disciples. But it's not just our finances or talents or gifts. It's, it's also the very gospel itself. We are, as the church of Jesus Christ, stewards of the gospel. Something Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and stick it under a bowl. 
No, they set it on a stand so that it provides light for everyone in the room. In the same way, let your light shine before men in order that they may give praise to your Father who is in heaven. And so we're called as a community of disciples to be stewards of the gospel. That means not stuffing it in a hanky and keeping it in our pocket, but to put it to use. And then there's one more principle here, a third principle. Well, there's, there's accountability, opportunity, and then I didn't know what to call this one. I'm calling it the, the principle of the self-multiplying mina. Notice the language of the servants when they report. The servants say, your mina made ten minas. Your mina made five minas. Not, Lord, I made five or I made ten. You see, the multiplying power is ascribed to the mina itself. That's interesting, isn't it? It's like the seed of the gospel. Do we cause the seed of the gospel to take root and blossom in people's lives? No. We spread the seed of the gospel far and wide, but it's God and God's gospel that brings about the harvest. So the question today, as we think about applying this parable to our our lives and our church, I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is what what, what have you done? What have I done? What are you doing? What am I doing with what the Lord has given to us? Are you, are you using your talents? Are you using your, your resources? Are you using the time the Lord has blessed you with in service to King Jesus? Let me, let me end here by going back to saying something about motivation. Because you remember the The third servant, he was was driven by fear, wasn't he? I was afraid of you because I thought you a hard man. He didn't really understand the king's grace and goodness and generosity. And so I want to invite you, dear friend, to come if if you are burdened in your service this morning. Come especially if there is something corrupt dwelling within your heart, causing you to say to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, you are such a hard man to serve. Come and find this morning afresh how good and gracious and kind and generous the Lord is. And all of those things that, yes, are duties, will become delights in the Christian life. The privilege of service. And as stewards of our good and gracious king, let's be found faithful. Isn't that what you want? I want to be found faithful when Jesus returns. Let's be found faithful. We don't know when he's returning, but I I pray that we would be found faithful, joyfully, sacrificially serving Jesus. But you see, Jesus is communicating to us in this parable, the time is now. The time to use the gifts for his glory that he has given to us. The time is now. So this sermon really boils down to a single exhortation, dear friends. Let's get busy. Let's get busy serving the Lord in the strength of the Lord. With the gifts that he has provided. With the resources he has entrusted to us. 
and the very gospel itself which he has given to us. Let's get busy serving our good and gracious king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of knowing and serving you. Help each one of us to search our hearts this morning to see uh, how we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we know, Lord, that there, is, uh, areas in our li- there are areas in our lives where each of us can grow in our service to our Lord and Master. And so we pray that you would help us to grow in faithfulness and in stewardship of all that you have entrusted to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.